a very warm good evening to everyone on behalf of the center for justice law and society detention solidarity and cpap we would like to welcome you all to today's panel titled gender justice and anti carceral politics framing of a, a feminist critique of carcerality in india this discussion is part of an extended webinar series on anti carceral politics in india organized by us in collaboration with cpap and detention solidarity The Center for Justice and uh, Justice Law and Society is a multidisciplinary research center at Jindal Global Law School, Op Jindal University, that critically engages with contemporary issues at the intersection of law, justice, society, and marginalization in South Asia. CJLS is a collaborative endeavor of a group of scholars, activists, and students. At CJLS, we foreground the question of justice in law and society studies. to respond to the changing relationship between law and society through collaboration with activists scholars and social movements we would like to begin this session by acknowledging the work of anti caste activists like savitri ba jodipa phule manyavar kanshram om prakash valmiki ji dr ambedkar periyar among the many other persons from uh, the anti caste movements and uh, indigenous peoples movements the feminist uh, movements including uh, dalit and adivasi activists uh, women's rights movement queer feminist scholars who have contributed to this discourse before we set the context for today's discussion we also want to acknowledge the contribution of many feminists uh, uh, black feminists including mariam kaba and angela davis who have developed the vocabulary of anti carceral politics and community organizing and whose hard labor has inspired conversations on anti carceral feminist discourses within indian context these conversations continue to be fledging in india and have uh, brought forth the challenges and limitations of both an over emphasis on carceral institutions as well as the imagination of anti carceral structures today's panel discussion is a preliminary attempt uh, emphasis on preliminary attempt to have conversations on the issue anti carceral feminism uh, began to gain traction in india a uh, few years ago uh, in response to the indiscriminate negative effect of the violent model of criminal justice in, in the carceral state instead of calling for retributive and punitive measures anti carceral feminism emphasizes the need to look for alternatives to the carceral method of dealing with what is considered criminal behavior the rise in power of the carceral state has led to an accelerated functioning of carceral institutions through an expansion of incarceration rates that disproportionately affect the marginalized specifically those who are marginalized due to caste class uh, gender sexuality and disability the criminal justice system is at its core founded on a power dynamic that works to uphold existing social hierarchies and maintain inequality due to a colonial and casteist inheritance that is already entrenched in the law in the indian context the intersecting social hierarchies of caste indigeneity and gender produce complex and unequal distribution of power that govern the arrangements of social relations the intersection of caste and gender under uh, brahmanical patriarchy is determinant of the way 
gender-based oppression and discrimination is experienced in a society where caste is a powerful social determinant occupying a central place in regulating gendered relations. The criminal justice system serves the Brahminical Patriarchy project of social stratification and the intrinsic bias perpetuated by Brahminical Patriarchy is evident from the incarceration and abuse of uh, abuse people of marginalized communities using illegal arrests and detentions, fake encounters, extortion, torture, false cases and custodial violence that includes murder, rape and sexual abuses. Uh, now I, I would like to invite my colleague and comrade Kanmani to take over. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ramani. Carceral approaches to gender justice tend to presuppose a homogeneous trajectory of common oppression without accounting for the factors complicating and distinguishing these experiences, including, among other things, caste and class. When feminists advocate for and embrace carceral solutions, there is a shift in the emphasis from the deepest causal factors of crime itself, class and caste-based hierarchies, it is therefore important to interrogate the role of the law in defining the contours of crime and punishment and analyze the limitations of the law in adequately responding to the needs of a society so deeply divided along lines of caste hierarchies, ones that are further entrenched by the castral state. Through today's conversation, we hope to critically explore the relationship that the feminist movement in India has forged with the criminal justice system and the debates that have emerged in the interrogation of this relationship. In doing so, we want to place an emphasis on the link between cis-heteropatriarchy, caste-based violence, and the carceral state, borrowing from the work done by Dalit Bahujan feminists like Lata Pratibha Madhukar, among others, to envision a feminist anti-carceral politics in India and the limitations of the framework as well. In the panel today, we hope to deliberate on questions such as, how do we think about carceral politics when social movements such as feminist movement seem to slip into this carceral logic that the state endorses or perpetuates? How do we reassess roles of social movement involvement in the paradigm of crime, punishment, and justice upheld by the state? What does an imagination of anti-carcerality in a caste-based society look like? What are the structural limitations of anti-carceral politics? How do we think beyond the binary of carcerality and anti-carcerality? For the benefit of our listeners, I would like to introduce our esteemed panelists before we move on to today's discussion. We are joined today by Safura Zargar, uh, Vikwaram and Ratna Apnender. Safura is currently pursuing MPhil PhD in sociology from Jamia Millia Islamia. She is best known for her role in the anti-CEA protests and her subsequent arrest under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act 1957. Vikwaram is an independent researcher and a friend. They live and love in Delhi. Ratna is a lawyer and legal researcher currently living and working in Delhi. Once again, I would like to thank you, Safura, Vikwaram and Ratna so much for taking the time to join us today for this very exciting conversation. We look forward to hearing your remarks on the subject. With this, I would like to invite Safura for their opening remarks. Thank you so much, Kanmani. Uh, in fact, I will also take this opportunity to thank everybody who has made this discussion possible today. As somebody who has been in prison and has personally experienced all these 
contradictions. I think talking about it um, amidst researchers and activists and obviously everybody else is kind of therapeutic. So thank you again for this opportunity. In the past uh, decade, the, the feminist discourse uh, basically generally in India, it has been uh, grappling with uh, the complexities of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, that is CLA, which was after the Nirbhaya case. And also more recently around the Me Too movement. I call these two as contradictory also because the CLA and the Nirbhaya movement, I think, was um, focused on an engagement of uh, feminists with the law. And uh, the Me Too movement, I would say that it was kind of a disillusionment. And uh, because of the caste nature of the law, basically. But I would, that is also how it is generally seen. And this has kind of brought out this whole debate on the, uh, you know, carceral nature of the feminist politics in in India. Uh, But I would also like to highlight a third one, which is also, uh, which is very recent, which is the weaponization of the law against uh, human rights defenders, against activists, students, authors, lawyers, which has uh, a forced us to talk about our prisons and uh, which which are again an important part of the carceral system and uh, uh, and b it has also made us talk about the feminist critique of the carceral system right as a feminist personally I think, um, and it wouldn't be, I'm not even ashamed of admitting it, that I have advocated of uh, a stringent carceral measures against, um, in in cases of sexual violence, Uh, because your immediate natural urge um, in your, in anger is to see the person who's caused you that harm suffer, right? But when I encountered the, the carceral system in person and there is a process the 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 first step is your encounter with the police and uh, the second step is Mm. your encounter with the prison and the third step is your encounter with the judiciary and when I encountered all of these steps it uh, definitely actually made me question myself and my advocacy for so long because when you advocate for something i think as uh, as human beings uh, supposedly and m- most importantly human beings who are driven by honesty i think uh, we sometimes do fail to incorporate the power imbalance in our society we we talk about inequality but we also need to uh, talk about the dominance and we look at state you know as the protector Right. So that with that mindset, we advocate, we get overzealously carceral, I would say, and, you know, we demand stringent laws. But again, which is, it is founded in the basic hypothesis that, you know, the state is the protector. But uh, again, uh, when you're in your close encounters with the state, and especially in your personal encounters with the state, and also I would say researchers who have researched um, extensively on these topics, lawmakers, um, advocates, and also uh, people who are survivors of crimes, 
we really understand the nature of you know the state to a large extent and i think that has been my personal experience as well right i would begin by talking about the steps you know uh, the first step in your encounter with the carceral system is is the police and uh, uh, you know how the police is basically kept on a pedestal and i would say uh, we don't look at as much as the part of the society as it needs to be because at the end of the day the police is also part of the society and it is a reflection of the same prejudices of caste class gender uh, religion that you know that we encounter in our society so we need to incorporate all of that when we when we look at you know, the police system and it and you know uh, it operates in terms of a very predictive level because how i mean the recent ncrb data highlights that how our prisons are uh, filled with um, more of the marginal communities even as uh, under trials 70% of under trials in prison and the slow pace of our judicial system basically makes them suffer for a very 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 long time in in prisons right uh, so again the kind of predictive policing that the police is um, already uh, predictive policing based on prejudice that the police is already engaged in you know looking at certain communities who who are already underprivileged and marginalized as the routine offenders so that uh, again it becomes it, that is the first encounter of a common person with the carceral system and i think that is where the problem begins then this when you are in custody at that point of time the method that the police uses the, those of torture the custodial torture we haven't talked about it enough because we have normalized it to such an extent that we believe that it is perfectly normal and in fact we go on to say that what choices that the police has apart from torture to basically uh, i think extract so called confessions from uh, from the accused right and although these the confessions are not admissible in the court of law but they do become the part of the evidence right so again that's that that in itself has a problem and i feel that even as a feminist i never thought too much about it you know in fact uh, sometimes we often go as far as to say that you know ha do police ke thappad padenge to sab kuch bol dega you know he will confess his crimes and i would look at it even uh, as a positive connotation right so again the torture uh, the custodial torture has somehow been uh, not been addressed enough in terms of our uh, policing system uh then thirdly your third third encounter is with the prison and uh, as somebody who had never encountered prisons and i would we actually look at prisons as a you know as something like away from the society we want to lock our problems inside the prisons and just throw away the key and feel that you know it is going to disappear instead of fixing the problem so that is the that is that i feel is the is the fundamental wrong in the you know in the carceral system that we have not talked about and we are not willing to talk about but again this that there are highlighted that the the, the the third process uh in the past decade of the weaponization of law against the human rights defenders that has forced us to talk about 
about uh, our prisons and you know the, the 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 changes that are required in the prison system as somebody who was in the prisons and as in the women prison and uh, who was also pregnant uh, i would say that the the prison as as an institution is designed uh, is very male centric uh, it is not made to accommodate the needs of women the the menstruation needs uh, the the reproductive needs and uh, also uh, the child care needs or the lactation uh, needs of the women it cannot accommodate that even when you enter the first step when you enter the prison is the strip search that you have to undergo and how uh, for me it was problematic on uh, so many levels uh, because uh, you know i i definitely felt very very uh, violated of my uh, you know privacy yeah you know so again how the prison system itself is designed uh, in a very i mean it's very misogynist so that is the third step in the encounter with the carceral system and the, i think the final step would be the judiciary you know which is uh, supposed to be the upholder of the law uh, right uh, an upholder of the constitution of the country but i would say that in the process Uh, of upholding the law i think uh, a lot is lost especially in india where cases go on for 20 20 years and i when i was in prison i encountered so many such cases wherein the the accused had been in jail for 10 to 12 years and been uh, you know uh, then uh, they had been acquitted in the end but essentially the 10 to 12 years are definitely are, are extreme completely lost in this uh, entire process so again um, i think uh, uh, the the encounter with the judicial process also leaves one extremely uh, you know disillusioned with the with the entire process finally what i what i have wanted to convey is that in uh, when we are trying to tighten the you know the carceral majors uh, in the state otherwise also generally also not just in terms of the feminist movement we are actually endowing the state with more and more power without forgetting that you know the state can uh, misuse this power it uh, subordinates people it oppresses people and there is a tilt in the balance of power and that power is disproportionately used against the marginalized communities which is also i feel that it is also disproportionately used against women and it is also disproportionately used against you know the the lower caste the the mostly the poor people and you know the marginalized um, the minority religions so because also there is an overlap in terms of you know the class caste race gender uh, you know the continuum there is an overlap in terms of poor mostly people who are poor from the you know the lower caste or from the minority religions they will they have the most chances of landing up in prison and languishing in jails for a very very long time without adequate legal representation and uh, uh, without any hope and even after they come out because we have no and because our our carceral system is focused more on uh, um on punishment rather than reform and rehabilitation even after coming out um you actually uh, leave no avenues open for them to actually restart their lives whether they have been acquitted or convicted so finally when we talk about the you know the the feminist 
anti-cultural politics i feel that we we need to readdress uh, and you know kind of shift our focus from the state to the society and stop looking at state uh, as the savior for the women and uh, uh, and you know look for alternatives that can help in the process of reformation and rehabilitation rather than just being focused on the punishment because also we have seen that it has not been very helpful in terms of reducing the crime rates also i think uh, over to you kanmani thank you so much safura thank you for your opening remarks i you've left a lot to think about to be very honest i was taking some notes also and thank you for that and um, with this i would like to in, uh, invite vikram to make the opening remarks hi um, again uh, much like safura i would like be i want to extend my gratitude uh, to all the organizers and i'm very grateful to everyone who joined us this evening i look forward to being in community with all of you this evening especially around something that's actually very close to my heart and actually very close to my life even if not in the same way as safura i want to raise a couple of uh, things in my opening comments uh, these will be sparsely uh, phrased uh, however i am happy to take up any of these uh, and ex- extend on them in the q and a as part of answering the introductory uh, concept note and the uh, the kind of provocation kanmani uh, has placed for us i i wanted to speak uh, from uh, what i see is the current moment in queer and trans politics i wanted to do that especially because i am increasingly very unsure where to look at when thinking of the feminist movement i don't know who to look at um, also and it often when one ends up looking at the feminist movement uh, there are problems of uh it being of course uh, certain kinds of women uh, cis women uh, respectable women um and so on and so forth and other movements uh, tend to be peripheralized um and often a lot of movements that we might think of as part of the feminist movement don't articulate themselves as such so it's a really kind of open question about what do we call the feminist movement because i do not think that uh, who we are now calling feminist this scarecrow figure actually speaks in one voice and there is one strand of feminism that is deeply tied to the casserole one strand of feminism that is uh, that looks at the state as protector as guarantor of rights and so on and so forth but we need to kind of think about this in more diverse ways i also want to say right at the outset that for me any movement that is uh, that uses rights based discourse is actually tied to the casserole impulse right uh, so the the larger distinction that people often make between people asking for what is their due and their rights versus the punitive institution of the state is actually false and i want to raise some of those uh, questions through my intro- uh, my opening comments which i'll get to right now so um the what i want to also uh, kind of uh, preface what i'm saying with is simply that the criminal is actually a very limited perspective of looking at the casserole right the casserole is not one that only holds the criminal even as it is an important kind of figure through which to kind of undo the casserole so in my opening comments i'm going to speak to the criminal but uh, perhaps uh, later in the conversation i can raise other issues so uh, we have to know that when the penal code was being set up in india uh, by uh, the british colonial government especially we had the penal code actually establish the criminal as a hinge between uh, the individualized body of those who commit crime 
and their community, right? Um, and so actually we know for a fact that the anthropological and the colonial state uh, joined together to produce the criminal, particularly through the sight of their body, right? And so, for example, there was penal tattooing, uh, there is the shaving of the hair and so on and so forth. And they continue to be practices of particularly reading crime of the body of the criminal. And that crime was not simply about this individual subject, but also the genealogy of the community through which they come through. Of course, the epitome of that is the Criminal Tribes Act that locates uh, crime, the capacity for, or the potentiality of crime itself as a hereditary. And so I, I want to actually think of that as the continuation of uh, the post-trans bill, trans body, where again, the body is supposed to hold the signs of its identity and community, right? And so forms of scarring, whether at that time penal tattooing or at this time for surgical interventions, et cetera, become central to reading uh, one's capacity to become uh, subject citizens of the state. And it is actually very interesting that this, this relationship between the individual and the community and the state continues even when we think of queer and trans politics, because while various forms of politics have come up with languages in which they speak to the structure of power through a language of ism, so whether it's uh, challenging caste patriarchy through casteism, racial capitalism through racism, or even something like sexism, queer and trans politics is deeply tied to the idea of the aberrant criminal in the language of homophobia and transphobia, right? They're not systemic structures. They are more an aberration that someone occupies inside them. It's a kind of psychic prob uh, problem. And I... Whereas I do want to think about the psyche in a larger kind of, uh, as Freud might call it, in a mass psychology kind of way, this psyche is deeply individualized. And so queer and trans politics, even when it organizes around, say, anti-trans and anti-queer violence, it tends to create the homophobe or the transphobe as a particular type, right? And that type is actually one that can be morally reformed, right? And so there is actually... The emphasis in particular kind of feminist, queer and trans politics is often on uh, kind of moral reform. In fact, and that they share with the judiciary, which often kind of looks at remorse and guilt as a particular frames through which criminality is actually assessed. Uh, and so actually, I feel like it is very interesting uh, that we have, on the one hand, the recognition of anti-queer and trans violence in the aberrant criminal. Whereas the conditions of the creation of that violence are actually never formally analyzed. And this happens while the state actually is the only place for legitimate violence, right? And so the state has a monopoly over legitimate violence. That's the classic political science definition of what is a state. And so the state, even though it does not offer food and shelter and healthcare to queer and trans people, uh, we, I, I mean, I cannot even give you the statistics because these things are not even counted about the hunger and homelessness of queer and trans people. It still has a legitimate right to, for, for violence and carcerality, right? And so we might want to think about the social contract that binds all of these people together as one that we might want to open up. And what does the state at the current moment give queer and trans people? It gives them representation, right? And so what you have is uh, the idea uh, of a certain kind of visibility 
uh, and a certain kind of um, presencing of queer and trans people in government offices on in national councils for trans persons and so on or on media and culture as the bait to legitimize the state right because in if you were to look at the large scale homelessness and hunger and lack of healthcare for queer and trans people what is it that makes the queer and trans body tied to the state and the state offers as the carrot representation right and so i want to actually think about um and representation is great for the state because it actually it uses precisely the vocabulary of visibility that actually benefits the surveilling state uh, and works in the benefit of the algorithm so those of us who are more visible are also easily captured by the state and in this way i want to actually think about this whole impulse towards visibility towards representation towards a rights based subject as against a subject deprived of state welfare uh, and open that up uh, as deeply tied to this carceral impulse and and how do we want how does one undo or what can undo this carceral impulse i want to open it from inside this very frame so one of the members of the national council for trans persons wrote a biography many years ago in which uh, she writes about going to amsterdam and uh, falling in love uh, not falling in love but actually having some sexual chemistry with someone she meets at a film festival uh, uh, that she has gone to participate in and a trans rights conversation right so this is a trans activist who goes from bombay to amsterdam and meets someone very charming there after the conference or festival they are hanging out there by the by the river whatever the water in amsterdam and uh, a madam x feels very uh, very cold and so in classic bollywood style uh, mr y takes off their shirt and offers it to madam x who's in her silk lehenga and choli uh, and she feel and so some chemistry happens and they're about to kiss uh, when uh, mr x uh, mr y uh, turns to madam x and says uh, do you know who i am uh, and at that point madam x's eyes fall on the scars of his chest Uh, and uh, madam x realizes that mr y uh, is actually a trans man and she is actually horrified right and she goes on to say many things uh, that are difficult to repeat in this moment uh, at this point but uh, one in which her conflict with the fact that he wasn't a cis man actually emerges significantly right um i do not want to uh, condemn uh, madam x for uh transphobia what i want to say is that the encounter with the scars uh on mr y actually might be the afterlife of the scarring of the trans body to be read into um read into the state right and read into uh, regimes of being trans sector so it reminds us of everything we have to do in order to survive and so because it is precisely the trauma that the state wants us to repress the trigger actually happens in this kind of moment of intimacy right and i so i do want to offer if the if the trans activist themselves is capable of something like transphobia we do not actually have a figure of the transphobe as out there a person to be criminalized but might we want to think about how the state actually was is invested in creating these figures in order to continue its monopoly of violence 
and deprive us of uh, our rights. Um, I'll stop there and maybe uh, take up some of these things later. Thank you so much, Vikram. In fact, as a law student, I feel like I've learned so much in the last twenty minutes. A lot of things that you know in in law school they don't teach you, and they just literally expect you to read Indian Penal Code as not from a critical lens at all. With that, I would like to invite uh, Ratna to make her opening comments. Hi, I thank you so much. Like everyone else has said, I think this is a really important conversation to have, and I'm glad it's being done in this way. And so, what I will say will be a little narrower and a little more basic than uh, what Vikram and Sapura has said. But uh, I think I basically I have a few broad questions. But before that, I would like to I'm, and I will actually focus on sexual violence and carcerality within in that context because a lot of my work has been on issues of sexual violence, and I have been thinking about these things for many years now. So. i think to begin with i think it is obvious and it is acknowledged that in recent years particularly the states almost the states only response to sexual violence to the issue of sexual violence seems to be to increase punishment or to hang people uh, so there are various instances of this in for instance in 2018 the punishment sentencing scheme was increased for rape and for sexual offenses and that was i mean there's really no reason for that except the incident of rape and murder of a young girl in kathua that preceded it by a few months so when there was public outrage around that incident the state's response was to increase uh, sentences and and punishment and expand the range of death sentence for offenses similarly after the december 2012 uh, gang rape and murder there were calls for the juvenile perpetrator to be tried as an adult and it's in some sense these are connected right it's not uh, it is uh, it responds to one response to public outrage but also these shortcuts in some sense to deflect from the real issue so while that juvenile wasn't tried as an adult the government immediately amended a few years later in, amended the law to now the uh, juvenile justice act to try juveniles accused of heinous crimes as adult or we have the disha act which was recently introduced in andhra pradesh or the shakti act in maharashtra all of which while increasing sentences also introduce uh, these measures like investigation has to be completed within two weeks trial has to be completed within a month which again like these sound uh, great and these sound like the state is, is taking st- strong action against sexual violence but we know that this doesn't really help anything so uh, i think this kind of response by the state is in some sense it can be termed as violence by the state really to deflect from the actual issue of ensuring accountability in cases of sexual violence and uh, instead of ensuring say investigation trial uh, accountability in that sense and it also really serves to perpetuate the understanding that sexual violence is an atrocity or an aberration where the perpetrator is an other and that's where we do come to the disproportionate impact of sentencing or of uh, sexual offenses on men from certain classes or certain oppressed castes right so this the response of the state and the law does really perpetuate and rely on narrativizing sexual violence as an atrocity as opposed to acknowledging that it is a norm and that it is systematic 
and it creates constructs it as an event based thing which can be solved with harsher punishment so just to very briefly i mean i don't want to talk about it for too long but to briefly just understand what the sentencing structure is right now for rape and sexual offenses in 2018 the indian penal code was amended and so now the minimum mandatory sentence for rape is 10 years and for rape al- along with causing death of the victim the minimum sentence is around 20 years and for rape of a minor again it's 20 years and for repeat offenders it is there's a minimum of life imprisonment so these sentences are even within the scheme of the indian penal code they are high and they are on the higher side but like i said i think punishment and incarceration is the state's response to most problems and not just sexual violence whether it's corruption or corporate debt that is what the state is doing by incarcerating people both pre trial and uh, post trial right so the, i think that is what the primary issue is and what we're trying to look at but having said that i have a when it comes to sexual violence i there are some fundamental questions i think which we sort of need to talk about a little more so when it comes to sexual violence and particularly say feminist engagement with the law and the state i think it is acknowledged and agreed upon even within feminism that we should be cautious for what we ask for from this state we should be wary of strengthening the state's power right but i think a more fundamental question would be is whether in cases of sexual violence or in cases of caste atrocities or violence against trans people or even state violence whether if when the victim files a complaint or whether punishment is sought or redress within the law is sought can this be characterized so easily as the victim deploying the might of the state against the perpetrator so is the state really on the victim side in these instances or is the state either deliberately to shield uh, the perpetrator if the perpetrator is influential or even just systemically or due to institutional incompetence uh, apathy bias whatever just habitually is the state uh, does the state work in a way which ends up shielding the perpetrator right so or either or by making the legal system so inaccessible or is the logic of the law itself substantively such that certain experiences of violation or certain wrongs are not really redressed through the law so having said this even with within this reality i think we do need to examine the issue of the impact of incarceration or the impact of criminal provisions on sexual violence and the disproportionate incarceration of certain categories of people so i think when it comes to sexual violence we can sort of uh, even without really looking at the data say that it is largely poor men who are incarcerated possibly belonging to oppressed castes who are incarcerated both pre trial and who often end up being sentenced to life imprisonment and or hanged right and again disproportionate incarceration of certain communities is uniform among, uh, for all offenses but i think we need to think about this the impact of this consequence when it comes to sexual violence in slightly different ways so my understanding of castral politics is one that there may be laws or legal provisions that are targeted at certain communities like the criminal tribes act or the unax act and two that is one kind of castral legislation or there may be laws or, le- or legal provisions that are facially neutral 
but have the consequence of targeting certain communities like the excise act or COVID policing and the, the reports that CPAP has recently done. But the third question for me would be, what about laws which are like social justice laws, right? Like provisions on sexual violence or POXO or the Prevention of Atrocities Act, all of which are intended to pro protect certain communities and protect them from the harm society commits on these communities. And then what do we do? How do we think, how do we think about the issue when these laws end up also having say disproportionate uh, targeted uh, impact on certain communities. So, and I think when it comes to social movements and their engagement with the law, it's also inherently there are contradictions or complexities because whether it's say 498A or sexual, other sexual offenses or wanting uh, demands to criminalize marital rape or asking for gender neutrality of sexual offenses, or even under the POA recently, where there has always been an exception to anticipatory bail and the Supreme Court judgment read that exception down. And now the POA Act has again been amended to create an exception for anticipatory bail or the critique of the Trans Act, which says that the two year prescription of two years punishment is a problem, right? So on the like how do we are we going to label these as carceral impulses or are we also going to acknowledge that there is a preliminary need for acknowledgement for these violations to be acknowledged and righted in some sense and maybe the only maybe the solution isn't prison and punishment and uh, the law but i think it's important to understand where these are coming from so yeah i think what I'm trying to look for is also what is our principal basis for deciding sentencing or lowering sentencing. And I have no problem saying let all the sentences be much lower and that the sentences shouldn't be so high. But I still don't know on what basis we are really saying this. And particularly when it comes to say, sexual offenses or rape, where we do know that a large overwhelming majority of the cases under 375 are either promise to marry cases or cases where uh, relationships with women between the age of 16 to 18 are criminalized, right? So you see that these provisions are being used to perpetuate, say, patriarchal assumptions. But what, what about the impact of this and what is the consequence of this? And I think this also, uh, the other question to ask is, in cases of sexual violence, would the location of the victim make, uh, how would that impact how we think about uh, think about this? So I do think we need to analyze, do some sort of qualitative analysis of the kinds of cases that are filed under 375, who is filing them? Would it make a difference if the victim was from the same location, marginalization as the perpetrator who's being incarcerated? Would that have a bearing on, on it or, uh, you know things like yeah. Um, so sorry about the time. No, no, uh, we can. Yeah, this I think this is a start of a conversation, and I don't know. I think these 10, 10 minutes speaker has given a lot of food for thought. So with that, I would like to ask one question as the moderator: um, How can we imagine a feminist politics that is anti-castral or decastral in nature? What are these? structural limitations of such a politics in the Indian context. Um, that, that I think is a very, very important question for us to think about for the next 10 minutes, maybe. 
Um, anyone would like to go ahead? This is a question to the panelists. Anyone can go ahead. Because the question was actually thankfully sent to us before I wrote a few thoughts down. Um, and so I just want to kind of read them out because it'll just be really quick. Uh, I'll try to read them slowly. So I think that the exceptionality of unlivable conditions of prisons or custodial violence or overcrowding or death penalty needs to be resisted, right? Um, and so even something like uh, the turning death penalty to life imprisonment as a form of leniency is itself a kind of problem, right? And so what I want to insist upon is that abolish is a language. It is about not just the prison, but about all the distinctions we make in a day of value, of respectability and disposability. It is in the casual ableism of calling people sociopaths or barbaric, a term that's often tied to sexual violence especially, and to the use of pellet guns and factory accidents that immobilize people in their homes. So, Turmali, so I don't think that the national is a useful frame for thinking about the trans question, simply because trans people, I feel, are caught within it. I tried to explain that in the first half, rather than belonging to it. And so I'm actually relying on two black trans people uh, that, and activists that I think are very uh, have valuable things to tell us. Uh, one is Turmaline. Uh, they, they once tweeted, abolish the cop in your head. Uh, and the other is Peter Okalul. Uh, they are a, a beautiful uh, poet and uh, artist, and they said the politics is police. So I'm trying to use both of them to kind of think about abolishing the cop in your head and in your speech. So number one, but also in the body, the first space that contained, let go of all the names so you can find where it hurts, covering in fear, can you address a wound without exposing it? Can we support people without knowing them? Before the mind and the body, is there a heart and a spirit? Before history and lineage, is there ancestry and memory? Is the skin the border in which I live or is it the planet? So much water, both of us, and yet it is only land we care about. Prime land, fertile land, uh, crypto land. Tend to the desert, tend to the barren, the cold, the abandoned. Untrain the hostility, even the cactus is afraid, the ice may not bleed. Two, address the guard in your speech. Always responding, always reacting, not creating, not resting. Too worried about itself to bother about someone else. Let misunderstanding become an invitation. Three, open the gates. Abolish homelessness, but also homes. Safe spaces that keep people away from your possessions. You cannot possess joy, no matter how great the fence. The home is the first and the last frontier, the border of all borders. Offer its comfort to the wayward, but do not ask anyone to stay. Sometimes just suggest that they do. Those only to those who are too early to leave, who are told this is not their place. Make a place to hide, offer it sunlight and oranges, and let rest happen where limits are. This is neither mine nor yours. Create an hour who you are every day. Finally, refuse. Refuse this world of family, neighbor, community, stranger, 
the carceral is national, so live in an otherwise. Not some glorious past, not a future that isn't everyone's present, but of dreams, of dreamers, of the dreamy and the dreaming. Open yourself to wonder, but also surprise. Let all those who are declared the enemy in. Not just them, but also you. If they cannot taste what you offer, they cannot trust. Persuade them with beauty and joy rather than shame and righteousness. Wish no one to be stronger, resilient or brave. Let no one be anything but themselves, ourselves. Some of you offering the sum of us. Create an hour every day. Did I say it already? I mean, let's try again. Stop that. Thank you so much. I don't know what to say to that. It's it's quite profound and um, a lot to think about, I think. Safura, Rapna, do you want to go ahead and try maybe thinking about this question? Are there anything else that you feel like you, you wanted to talk about during the panel and during the opening remarks? So I think in response to this question, I actually don't think the feminist imagination is limited to carceral politics. I do think feminism or say the women's movement or women's groups have begun and continue to do a lot of work outside the law. And I think they are in some sense best placed to also know the limits of the law and the consequences of the law. And frankly, I don't think the current situation wherein where the state is responding with harsher sentences, I don't really see that as a result of the way in which the feminist movement or women's groups have engaged with the law. So I think that's a slight mischaracterization. And I know, I mean, I've seen it uh, come from different directions and it's also slightly ahistorical. But apart from that, I think when it comes to, say, an anti-carceral or decarceral approach in relation with regard to sexual violence, somewhere that uh, that filter is inbuilt in the nature of the issue itself. Like women are not running to the police or the courts when they're sexually violated, right? It's a very small percentage that goes to and either because of the barriers in the law, like for negative reasons or for other reasons where that is not that is maybe not what you're looking for. There are other ways in which women are dealing with it. But I think one of the alternatives that is actually playing out before our eyes is like Safura said, the Me Too narratives where in the past few years, there have been an increase in instances of public speech and sharing of experiences of violation. And in these cases, women do not want jail or punishments. A lot of times they just simply want to say this has happened and they want the truth to be known because it is an issue of public interest. Right. But what is actually interesting in that situation is the backlash. So the backlash is in the form of deploying the law either in the form of slap suits or defamation cases against them. Two, it is in the form of, de again, deploying the law by saying if she hasn't filed a complaint, she must be lying. If she was telling the truth, she would have filed a complaint and put herself through the law audio process. Right. So the law is, again, used to delegitimize an experience. So I think the alternative to pastoral politics can't, in certain situations, it can't be sort of created and sustained by the victim. It, there has to be some, like you have to create circumstances where it is also, uh, where it can function. Or say, the, I mean, a lot of uh, remedies for sexual harassment and sexual violence are in the form of inquiries, which obviously cannot 
or, and you can't punish a person with jail or incarceration. But we see these reports of findings also being challenged. So if, I mean, so where do we, I think to even think about anti-carceral or decarceral, you need some form of acknowledgement or accountability, however, like minimal or minor. But when that is not there, uh, it's a bit hard to say there shouldn't be a carceral remedy, which can be used at the option of the woman. Yeah. Um, Safura, do you want to uh, talk about uh, anything that you feel you have left out in the opening remarks that respond to any of the previous speakers? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Kandani. Uh, so I um, uh, definitely agree, agree with Ratna when she says that, you know, uh, it is wrong to pin the blame um, on, no, on solely the feminist, you know, for the entire, um, uh, you know, centralization of the carceral, I mean, the penal, a penal kind of system in the, you know, in, in India. Right. So uh, most importantly, uh, what I feel um, is that uh, uh, in terms of taking a position uh, between an abolitionist or a reformist, um, I mean, between the abolitionist being a reformist or an abolitionist, again, as Ratna highlighted it, uh, I would definitely um, right now, obviously, we are all evolving in this entire process. But currently, I think I will talk from a very reformist position because I think law does act as a dissuader um, in the society against uh, such crimes but I think the problem comes on the over-reliance of the law and again uh, looking at state as the protector and over-dependence on the state to, to you know to protect to protect the women uh, I would actually want to focus uh, on you know the improvement of the process you know, in terms of demanding, uh, you know, uh, stricter punishments, I think there has to be a focus on the implementation part of it um, a lot in terms of, again, as I highlighted the step-by-step -step process of the, you know, the encounter with the police, the encounter with the prison, the encounter with the judiciary. I think there is a lot of reformist transformative work that needs to be there, coupled with, again, as Ratna was also talking about, you know, uh, changes um, I mean creating structural support systems for uh, you know women because uh, at again at a number of times um, I mean a lot of times is you know as a woman you're all looking for an acknowledgement you know um, a simple acknowledgement that you know you have been wronged right uh, so yes, um, in terms of that, uh, um, also again, all women may not be willing to take the take, take the legal uh, recourse as we see in India. There's a very small number of women taking the legal recourse. But again, uh, I feel that the narrative building around it is very important. That you know, we need to understand that you know, um, as women, when we are calling for uh, you know hang the rapists and it just comes very naturally very impulsively from this uh, feeling of being wronged of uh, something uh, you know I mean of your body something that is you know I mean it's emboldened in your body and you know th that feeling of wrong it comes from, from there but then um, again looking at the wider picture keeping in mind the wider picture I think we have to uh, think about all of of these things more consciously in terms of the other things that you know might be a repercussion of it uh, so again I think again I will um, I 
will uh, I will take a very reformist approach and I definitely feel that there is a lot of work um, that needs to be done in terms of you know um, our prisons and um, you know uh, especially in case of you know women prisons um, out there but I would again want to highlight one thing that you know um, taking a reformist or a abolitionist perspective in, in theory uh, it actually might play out very different in practice because we are navigating a field that is uh, that is uh, somehow that is very new and you know we are uh, trying to uh, deal with the state in that term so again if even if we uh, look for uh, you know you know abolishing uh, prisons altogether then uh, you know then again that it, in practice what will be the implications of it in society i mean are the structural conditions there to deal with such a situation Okay, so all of these problems are there of, you know, of practice and theory. And I think it needs to be looked at from that perspective. Uh, but uh, I feel that it's a very complicated question to answer altogether, you know, um, the, the, the entire politics, how, is, uh, how it plays out. Um, thank you so much, Safura. Thank you, Vikram and Ritna. I, um, so now I think we can, yeah, Vikram, yeah, go ahead, Okay, so sorry, just quickly to add, um, I'm going to take a different, I just want to put this out there, uh, just want to say this, that I feel like, um, I think we have to think about uh, abolish in the everyday. And so I, I again kind of want to stay away from the spectacular, because I think once you land up at the spectacular, you end up taking a reformist position because it is that. But I feel like, say, for example, and I heard this in a workshop, um, uh, but and so I'll trace the name for someone, uh, for the person later. But um, I remember this person saying that when your friend is drunk and they want to drive back home, do you call the police? You don't. You actually try to convince them or you try to say, I'll order you a cab or you go with them and so on and so forth. There are various ways in which a, a kind of non-carceral impulse kicks in because this person is known to you uh, and so on and so forth. There are economies of intimacy which are constrained by precisely this carceral state that determine who we offer a perspective of everydayness uh, in which abolishes part of our lives and our vocabulary rather than the, uh, the prison carceral impulse. This, you can, um, this is also tied with people who can and cannot trust the police uh, this is also people who can think of the state as protecting them and not, right? So so I do want to say that actually the impulse for abolish is, is in the everyday already. And I feel like we have to build the infrastructure uh, that actually harnesses and builds on that. Uh, we have to build worlds that sustain that rather than thinking of thinking of the, the spectacular and the aberration as that which we need to fix. So I just wanted to offer that. I think that is a quite an important point and um, I, we have about 10 to 12 minutes to take audience questions. Um, so I'll just read out the question. Um, uh, so Anoshka has asked, hi, can Vikoyadam explain her last point a little more? Thank you. I, I don't know which point they're referring to. I think they're referring to the opening, rem opening remarks, I think. Not particularly sure. Or maybe the answers. I'm not sure which... Nashka, can if you are still hearing us, can you repost the question? Um, or, yeah, because I'm we don't know what you're referring to. Um, okay, so uh, to Ratna, uh, uh, an anonymous person is asking. It is sometimes it's a bit longer question, so I'll be a little quick. 
Uh, you can also read it on the Q&A box. It is sometimes said that the law is made from the perspective of the perpetrator and not from the perspective of the one violated. Is that a further reflection of the inaccessibility of law for victims or survivors? And this idea also contradicts in ways the carceral impulse of the law and state. Can you shed some thoughts on these? Yeah. yeah, no, I think I agree. And I think that is what I was trying to say about how the law internally itself has certain barriers that, I mean, prevent carcerality for certain groups, like certain groups or certain issues, say, even if you take state violence, forget sexual violence or atrocities against uh, Dalit people. But even when you take state violence from the time of, say, registration of FIR or to the the assumptions or the ways in which the investigation is done. I mean, these I'm being very specific, but it is the law itself is built in a way where certain experiences are excluded from redress, right? And which the point here is not that these experiences are excluded from the law alone, but also that accountability for perpetrators of certain acts are, is never ensured through the law. So that is, yeah, I agree with the comment. Um, okay, I'll, I'll go with the next uh, question. Where do we place the idea of, uh, within quotes, innocent until proven guilty in, let's say, the experience that Safura was put through versus any other powerful person accused of a crime? Is there a clean way to distinguish the pressing down by the state versus the systematic problems with the law? Um, does anyone want to go ahead? Safura, Ratna, Vikram, anyone? I don't know, it's a bit... <laughs> of an odd question. Yeah, I, I think I'll try to take that. Okay, so it's not possible, I feel, uh, to distinguish between the pressing down of the state and the systematic problems of the law because essentially state is the lawmaker, right? And um, as Vicky also said, that it has the power it is um, to do legal violence, right? So uh, it is difficult to distinguish, but again, all of these, I feel all of these problems are very interconnected. As I said, uh, that, you know, the power balance is so tilted that, you know, uh, people coming from uh, marginalized backgrounds um, have uh, uh, less access to the law generally also. And, uh, you know, um, and again, in terms of the policing system, how, uh, you know, uh, the, the policing system itself, I would say, is prejudiced towards certain communities, right? Uh, so it becomes, uh, uh, it, again, uh, so to, to actually say that whether it's the state or it's the law, I think it's the state weaponizing the law against whoever, whomsoever they please, uh, that, you know, that is the that is the basic problem. And I feel that, you know, all of these institutions that we see in society need to be looked at as part of the society that we live in replete with the problems that are that are present in the society uh, you know b is the you know uh, the experiences of the dalit bahujan people b the experiences of the minorities uh, the sexual minorities the poor the, the experiences of the poor right so uh, that is replicated in our systems and in our institutions you know and even as you know sukanya shanta had written this um, article a series of articles about caste in the prisons and how you know uh, you can see them being replicated in the prisons uh, caste based violence i would say you you can see them replicated in the prisons as well and very very starkly she had she had highlighted all of that so um again i say that you know all of these institutions also need to be looked at 
from that lens and the differential treatment that is meted out to people on the basis of the power relations or the marginalization that they experience in society. So I think uh, you can look at my case from that perspective, definitely. Um, I think I'll go for the next question. Uh, Soumya is asking this question to any of the panelists. Can you tell us a little bit about what feminist approaches to the law and state have been, especially before the 2012 Delhi rape case, uh, example case of Mathura, Bhavri Devi? Um, What was the approach before? Yeah, I'll just say one thing. I mean, I can't give you a historical description of it, but I do know that the intervention has really been on the substantive scope of uh, how these offenses are recognized by the law, right? So for instance, with Mathura, you do see the conversation around how past sexual history is used to undermine cons- uh, the lack of consent. You see that beginning there, and that has found a way into the law where now there is a prohibition on relying on extraneous factors. Or you see the recognition of custodial rape during Mathura, and that is also a substantive provision now where there, uh, where custodial rape or rape in power in is considered aggravated rape. And then in 2013, you see how consent has been defined. And this, again, is to prevent consent from being read from irrelevant extraneous factors that was done before. Or you see the removal of the, uh, you see a placing of a minimum mandatory sentence, which means the uh, discretion to reduce the sentence for special and adequate reasons was removed. Now that also has been criticized a lot and held responsible for a lot of things, but the basis for that is obviously like, uh, you all may be familiar with Rinal Satish's work where he's studied how these special and adequate reasons were always extremely problematic and perpetuating patriarchal uh, assumptions, right? So if a woman was a virgin, the perpetrator was given a higher sentence. If she had her medical report showed she'd had sex before, there was a lower sentence. If it was a stranger, the sentence was higher. And if it was an acquaintance, it was lower. So to, in some sense, to, I think, make the because the origin i mean the fact that rape existed in the indian penal code before any feminist engagement with the law that itself does tell us that rape is uh, it's it's a crime that patriarchy needs to have right and so to shift from that to the recognition of of rape as it is as it exists today i think that has really been feminist engagement with the law to put it briefly as well as uh, introducing other offenses which are not centered around you know vaginal penetration and rape like stalking disrobing etc so that is this thing but i think broad in a broader sense maybe others can talk about it but this is like in a strictly legal sense this is what it has been thank you thank you ratna um i think uh, anushka has again commented i think uh, anushka is saying when Vikram um, was talking about the example of the interaction with the trans man and the conclusion to that and about seeing beyond the national. I think uh, Nashka was trying to ask, ask you to expand a little bit more on that. So yeah, I'll try to do this really quickly and Anushka, please feel free to uh, get in touch and we can continue this conversation otherwise as well. Um, So what I was trying to say is that I was trying to take a leading national figure of trans politics and offer from within 
her own psychic uh, history, uh, something of a rupture that might open up the conversation uh, that we seem to be having these days, right? Especially around anti-trans violence, anti-discrimination law, and so on and so forth. Now, now in those conversations, often we have a very clearly marked person, often cis straight male, who is then seen to be the perpetrator, right? And what I was trying to uh, kind of think of is precisely uh, a moment in the interaction between this trans man and this trans woman, where the trans woman is horrified by the revelation of this trans man's trans history, right? Um, now, in any person who is aghast by uh, someone's trans history, like Ayushman Kurana in the recent film, we would call them a transphobe, right? Um, and and so, but what happens uh, when uh, it is the trans activists themselves, right? Um, and so what I want to say is not condemn the trans activists to transphobia. What I want to say is to open up the conversation about transphobia as about the particular construction of uh, trans and citizen subject identities in the present as particularly scarring, no puns intended, um, and also as one that significantly marks people. Uh, and so we might want to open up uh, a conversation in which if we have to address anti-trans violence, we might want to step, step away from the innocent and the guilty the victim and the perpetrator to a larger conversation about why is trans life impossible in the present uh, and whether what is offered as repair, like representation, is actually a repair or a kind of cover-up. And what might we gain from opening up intimacy itself as a site where we need to practice a kind of anti-carceral or an impulse to abolish. Thank you, Vikram. I, I think we have about five more minutes before uh, we close the session. So I'll just go with one more question. Is that okay? Okay, I'll just go with Somya's question. To what extent do we live in a punitive society and culture that has a castral impulse? I'm working to empower some women through social justice laws. Is it possible that it increases uh, the investment in the castral state and confirms the Brahminical patriarchal punitive culture that exists that we are working against. I mean, in, in short, we're working towards social justice, but we end up investing more in castrality. So uh, does anyone want to go ahead? Safura, Ratna, Vikram, anyone wants to try and answer that? Or if there is any other question that you want to answer, you can always look at the Q&A. Okay, um, I think I'll try to take that. I feel that, uh, uh, yes, we do live in a society and a, a culture where, you know, there is a carceral impulse. And uh, I think that is also how we are socialized. Um, that is also how we are, uh, we learn, we, I mean, we are taught to look at the society. And that is also, I feel uh, many a times a natural impulse to being wronged, you know, and that also takes the form of justice, you know, uh, again, the constant need to right a certain wrong. But I feel that in, um, in cases of crimes that we are uh, con currently seeing in the society, 
it is very difficult to say but to adopt a kind of a, a more uh, in terms of adopting a more detached uh, view i would uh, i would take a detached view and say that you know when we look at the system it is again it's very penal it is based on you know just punishment um as a form of justice right but um, uh, many a times i feel that it does not uh, it will not give you closure uh, but the approach can be shifted to um uh, empowering the the survivors or the victims more uh, that would again uh, shift the focus and uh, and secondly also to take a reformist i mean as i said to take a you know a rehabilitative approach towards the law that would be helpful but again um, i think uh, if you want to empower women through a uh, social justice law i don't think that should be a problem because again that is the existing system in the society and one of the major causes of you know women uh, i mean uh, not being able to um, you know the major reasons for you know the longer period of incarceration of women in jails without help is uh, also lack of you know uh, legal knowledge so uh, again this is a front that you know we are struggling on in terms of i mean generally also you know in term, in 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 the country that you know the lack of access to legal knowledge uh, so i feel that i think these um, are uh, you know uh, i think it's it's necessary in the current structure of system that is being uh, that has been set up to uh, to do this but then again i feel that there needs to be a parallel effort uh, to again uh, you know uh, talk about uh, you know social processes and majors uh, you know in terms of uh, you know empowering uh, women i think we can we can uh, look at and i think that somebody asked about that what has been prior to the 2012 how what has been the feminist contribution i think uh, it has the feminists have also contributed in transforming um, this uh, you know they have focused on uh, you know how the rape victim the rape survivors or in some cases victims have been looked at uh, you know uh, in terms of you know the societal backlash that you know that uh, that they may face and uh, you know feminists have also talked about uh, you know the women actually coming out and you know uh, talking about you know all of these things without the societal backlash and in providing the support system uh, for you know all of those wrong so i think that has been a contribution of the feminist movement uh, in terms of the in terms of addressing with the legal the law uh, before the you know the 2013 cla also uh, i hope that answers your question um the quorum we are a bit out of time i'm so sorry but uh, thank you so much everyone for the enthusiastic participation today unfortunately we could not answer all your questions even quite a lot of questions we i was not personally uh, we were not personally expecting this but uh, thank you so much for your participation but we look forward to continue to engaging in this conversation uh, please do send us your questions on the link that will be posted in the chat now i'll hand over to my colleague disha to uh, 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 to close the session disha 
thank you kanmani and thank you all of our very wonderful participants and uh, our speakers for holding space for this interesting conversation today uh, we want to take an opportunity to thank everyone whose efforts and contributions have given us the opportunity to come together and execute this event at the outset it is very important that we acknowledge the work of all anti-caste scholars dalit bahujan and adivasi groups and activists and the feminist movement in india as well as black feminists and critical thinkers and scholars who have laid the foundational stones for developing anti-caste vocabulary and helped us uh, draw significantly from their work to be able to hold this conversation and other similar conversations through the series of these webinars on behalf of the center for justice law and society at jindal global law school the criminal justice and police accountability project and detention solidarity we would like to extend our gratitude to safura vq and ratna for participating in today's discussion on gender justice and anti caste politics and to kanmani for facilitating this conversation your contribution and inputs to today's discussion are in valuable and will be instrumental in helping us take these conversations further we would also like to acknowledge the phenomenal work done by interpreters for today's session so thank you nimi varsha krishanu sai prinalini vaishnavi rituja aishwarya saheli and yazini who have helped us provide our audience the option to listen in to these sessions in multiple languages today We also want to thank Preeti and Aniket for providing us assistance with the Indian Sign Language interpretation for today's session, and we also want to extend our gratitude to the IT department at Jindal Global Law School for all of the technical support and assistance they have provided us and continue to provide us for all of these sessions. We've had the pleasure of organizing this series of webinars with Detention Solidarity and the Criminal Justice and Police Accountability Project. From Detention Solidarity, we would really like to thank Somya and Shelja. From the CPA Project team, we would like to thank our Diti, Harsh, Mrinalini, Nikita, Pallavi, Poojita, Sanjana, Sitamsini, Vaishali, and Yashraj. This collaborative endeavor has given us a platform to learn from you, and we look forward to holding more such exciting conversations in the future. We also want to take a moment to thank our entire team at CJLS, who has been very, very instrumental to make sure that everything runs smoothly today. We want to thank all of our interns, our research associates and assistants, and our associates specifically Abhaya, Anmol, Anusha. Professor Deepika Jain, Joshika, Kanmani, Natasha, and a special shout out to Ramani for all of her design work, as well as Shahnaz for all of their contribution to this series of webinars. And lastly, we also want to thank our Vice Chancellor, Dr. C. Rajkumar, for their unwavering support for all of our work at the center. Our final and most important vote of thanks today goes to our audience who've taken the time to join us today and engage with us on Zoom and other social media platforms. We are so grateful for you to taking out the time today and joining us in this discussion. We also want to invite you to the last panel of this webinar series, which is scheduled for the next Saturday, December fourth at five p.m. and is going to be organized by Detention Solidarity. This panel is titled "The Castle Security at State." It will also be followed up by a performance by Samta Kalamanch, which will be the concluding event for this series. So we invite you all to tune in at 5 p.m. next Saturday. On a closing note, we'd like to inform you that the video as well as transcript for this panel discussion, as well as the keynote and the previous panels that have been held, will be uploaded on our website. The link for which has already been provided to you in the chat. All of the questions that we were not able to answer today, which we are really sorry for owing to paucity of time, will also be sent to our panelists, and the responses for those will be posted on the blog on the very same website. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. We hope you have a great rest of the evening. Thank you.